Blog Talk Radio. Okay, well, listeners, I am so delighted and very honored to chat, begin chatting with my next guest. Uh, I'm sure you've seen his name all over the world in all kinds of media. Uh, about to speak with the one and only Dr. Robert Malone. And uh, among Dr. Malone's many list of achievements uh, include being an internationally internationally recognized doctor, scientist, and the original inventor of mRNA and DNA vaccination technologies, as well as in vitro and in vivo RNA transfection. Just, again, a short list of many of your accomplishments. Dr. Malone, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. I understand you're you're calling all the way from London, so uh, we're going to get this time zone situation uh, on the wave right now. Um, today, is, instead of talking so much about, we're going to touch upon some of uh, your medical work, but today we're specifically discussing your new book, Lies My Government Told Me and the Better Future Coming. Uh, what kind of information will readers find within these pages of your new book? The book is really designed not so much for the folks that are already awake, but for people that are wondering what has happened over the last three years. How do, you know? How can I make sense of it? Uh, what what has really transpired and, and what's behind it? What are the things that have driven this very dysfunctional public health response that we've all experienced? It's organized into three chapters, basically, or sections, and it's structured as, as if the way that a physician encounters a patient. So the first section of the book, with multiple chapters, is first-person account of what it's been like on the on the front line for physicians and others through this COVID crisis, the, the censorship and, and some of the other things that we've experienced, the suppression of early treatment, et cetera. It has authors, myself, Meryl Nath, your Corey, um, many others. And then the middle part is uh, instead of the history and physical, which is the first part that a physician would take, the second part is basically the diagnosis. What happened here? Um, what, what caused these things to happen? What is uh, driving the public health response? Um, how do you make sense out of all the things that have happened over the last three years? And then the last part is basically a treatment plan in the metaphor where we speak about what can we do about this? How can we prevent this from happening again? And how do we get to a better future instead of this dark transhumanism, fourth industrial revolution future that the World Economic Forum wishes to shape for us, which has driven much of this dysfunctional public health response? Is there any information within your book that pro-vax supporters will want to know about? I'm sorry, what supporters? Uh, the the pro-vaccine supporters. Is there any information? Pro-vaccine. Yes, sir. Um, I, well, I don't, I, uh, people that are in favor of these uh, uh, products. I think that 
this section in particular having to do with the nature of the modifications to the RNA that have been performed is useful. The section having to do with the propaganda campaign and how that was designed, how that messaging was developed through clinical trials and others to convince people to accept these products. Um, it, it may be useful for people to better understand the origins of a lot of the psychological effects that have been experienced by people in general, uh, those that are pro-vaccine and those that are, let's say, hesitant. Uh, I think anti-vax is a strong word, uh, and it's a word that's been weaponized. And I think that we all benefit from understanding what are the underlying drivers uh, economically and politically that have given rise to the situation that we find ourselves in where we're all at each other's throats. Everybody's angry. Everybody's looking for somebody to blame. What's really happened to drive all this? I think these are things that are universal that anybody who wishes to understand modern politics and modern public health uh, would benefit from from listening to. Whether or not they agree with it, the book is highly referenced. Many links to existing articles, both in the scientific literature and the lay press. And so it's it's a it can be a path that people can take to draw their own conclusions about what we've all experienced. When all of this division and polarization, political division started, when all this first started, did this surprise you? Uh, I, it did stun me. I've been through many outbreaks in the past. I've never experienced one, and, and this is universal among my peers, that those of us that are kind of hardcore at the center of, of uh prior public health response to these outbreaks, infectious disease outbreaks. None of us have ever experienced anything like what has been deployed over the last three years. The uh, harmonized propaganda that has been deployed globally in a simultaneous fashion is like nothing I or anybody else has ever seen. This is truly amazing what was accomplished. Uh, it has a lot of negative impacts, but there's no question that it has been a tour de force in terms of public health messaging and, and uh, um, propaganda in support of a particular set of public health measures. It's, it's been amazing to see it. Um, enormous amounts of money have been spent. Uh, artists, uh, influencers, opinion leaders, uh, musicians, comics have all been paid all across the world, particularly in the West, to promote these policies. Harmonized policies have been implemented, particularly within the nations that are part of the Five Eyes Alliance, the uh, Intelligence Community Alliance that ties Great Britain, the United States, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia together, that all have been characterized by a very heavy-handed kind of authoritarian response to the virus. It's, it's like nothing the world has ever seen. 
It just seems that the controversy and the conflict and the revelations just seem to just keep growing almost daily. Over the last three years, has, has I mean, as it started to heighten, has there ever been a, a thought or, or time that you may have had any regrets of having ever invented and created this technology? Uh, that, frankly, it doesn't really enter my mind. It's something that I did when I was 28. And the truth is that once a new technology emerges, and if it hadn't emerged from my bench, it would have emerged somewhere else. And basically, in many ways, it was rediscovered in the 90s. It had been um, kind of pocket vetoed by Merck and, and blocked from being able to be commercialized until the patents expired, and that it uh, was reactivated in the technology space. But do I regret uh, what I did? No, it was a spin-out of basic research that I was doing for other purposes. And I still believe that the core concept has merit. What has happened here is that the, the product, the mRNA product that's been delivered to people is not natural RNA. It's different from my original idea which was the molecule that would rapidly degrade in your body so that if it did cause a toxicity, it wouldn't be around for very long. And that's not what's happening with this pseudouridine modified RNA that's based on the invention from the University of Pennsylvania by Carrico and Weissman. So what's, what's happening here is based on my technology and discoveries, but it's also significantly different. It has very different pharmacologic characteristics but there's no question that the world would benefit from a safe and effective way to go direct from genetic sequence of a pathogen to an effective and safe vaccine product. Unfortunately, this was all rushed and jammed down um, through the system without following proper procedure to ensure safety and effectiveness. And now we have the consequences of that sloppy development process that the FDA and the other regulatory agencies of the world allowed the pharmaceutical companies to engage in, in large part because of the fear. There was so much fear, as you'll recall. And part of that fear, large part of it, was driven by Chinese propaganda. That's just the truth. What are your thoughts about uh, recently, as we everyone read, that uh, Bill Gates, his recent comments in Australia regarding the effectiveness of the vaccines, uh, did that surprise you, his comments, or what are you, your thoughts? Uh, it does surprise me that Mr. Gates would uh, publicly uh, reflect in this way. That's not, not usually his behavior uh, to to have such a frank and opening statement that mistakes were made um, under his watch and under his strong influence. Um, what you're referring to, of course, I assume, is the statement to the effect that the risk of the virus was grossly overestimated. Yeah. And the response was um, uh, heavy-handed and um, too strong, inappropriate for the amount of risk that actually existed with the virus and also acknowledgement, of course, that the vaccines are not working. They're not preventing infection and spread of the virus. I understand that he's also divested himself of many of his 
uh, prior investments in the mRNA vaccine technology, which uh, is interesting uh, if that's true. I was wondering, uh, you once worked for Bill, Mr. Gates, or, or one of his companies. Uh, what, what is your relationship like with his company or with him, or is there one? So the company I worked for was called Aris Global TV Vaccine Foundation. And that company, after I left, eventually failed. They failed to produce a safe and effective tuberculosis vaccine. And the company uh, was collapsed and its assets got sold off. I have worked with a company called PATH as a consultant. And uh, like many of Mr. Gates's nonprofits that he funnels money into, uh, all of these have a tendency to uh, behave, you know, kind of they're sycophants uh, in many cases. They they um, are very driven to support Mr. Gates and whatever his leadership is and direction is. That's that's how they get their uh, capital. That's how they, they receive their money from him is by doing his bidding. So they tend to not be really independent. Uh, they tend to be very, very responsive to whatever they think Mr. Gates and his organization thinks. And his organizations tend to be very much uh, populated by people who have uh, are perceived as experts that have come out of either academia or the, the vaccine industry. So he's, he's surrounded himself with people that really don't question things very much and follow orders very well and tend to be very invested in promoting vaccines as a technology and as a solution for public health problems. Are your calls welcomed by people like, such as Dr. Fauci, the CDC, current administration, or maybe the previous presidential administration? What is that like for you? Um, I, I used to be very integrated into the government and have fairly good access to uh, many uh, senior administrators in the FDA and in BARDA and uh, other and Department of Defense, Defense Threat Reduction Agency. But when I started speaking out, of course, I, I basically destroyed those relationships because I, those people could really not afford to be seen working with me or interacting with me. So all of, all of that prior uh, relationships that I've built up over decades has, have basically been lost as a consequence of my speaking out. How do I feel about that? It's kind of a necessary evil, you know, faced with the choice of maintaining my consulting practices or doing the right thing. I chose to do the right thing and disclose what I knew and raise objections to what was really a uh, systematic um, disassembling of the norms of clinical research and regulatory affairs that had been built up over decades. I just happened to have the ability to be heard more than many other uh, others who were willing to speak out because of my background and my role in creation of the technology that allowed me to have a, a voice that was heard uh, as opposed to others that were seen as having less legitimacy and were largely ignored. 
Well, I have two last questions here. Uh, let's revisit your book's title again. The, the title again is Lies by uh, Lies My Government Told Me and the Better Future Coming. I want to unpack the latter part of your title and the better future coming. Right now, as of today, this very minute, it just seems like our future is, is scary. Are we headed for some type of soylent green type of world? Or what do you see as when you say a better future coming? So this is this dark future, which the World Economic Forum wishes to create, those are their words for us, that uh, is you're referring to that's so dark and, and um, foreboding. This is the world in which they they are attempting to shape for us, in which uh, we will have uh, insects as a protein source. Notoriously, we will own nothing and presumably be happy in the world that they wish to save for us, a world in which there'll be more centralized um, ownership of resources and assets, and those will then be allocated out for the greatest good for the greatest number. So you'll get your Tesla as long as you need a Tesla, and then you won't have it anymore. A world in which man and machine become fused, and you have implement in, implantable technology uh, we've seen this movie before, of course, of the board, and we've seen uh, many of these types of scenarios play out in various uh, movie and uh, written cyberpunk fiction. The Matrix is one example, Mad Max is another. We don't have to live in that dark world. We can choose to not have our children functionally become indentured servants. We can choose a world in which we maintain our freedom, we maintain our personal and national sovereignty. We can choose to live in a decentralized world as opposed to a centralized world controlled by an elected bureaucracy, um, such as that which the United Nations and the World Economic Forum proposed to develop for all of our common good. So the belief that resources in the world are too scarce, but they have to be centrally managed. We've all seen that world before. We've called it communism, Marxism, Maoism. We've had socialism. We've had many different words for that, for the idea of a centralized command economy that ostensibly will be driving us all towards some social utopia. Better future, I believe, and I hear people advocating for all over the world as I travel is one in which we do maintain personal autonomy. We do have a more decentralized management structure. Um, and this is the world which George Orwell even believed in some of his early essays and, and early introduction to the book 1984, which was, of course, predicting this dystopia that we now face. He believed that the only way to escape the totalitarian future that he was envisioning was through seeking a decentralized world. And that's, that's what I hear a lot of people be enthusiastic about. And of course, um, many years ago, a group of admittedly white land owning and small business owning men uh, formed a Congress in the United States and delivered to us a declaration of independence 
a Bill of Rights uh, and a Constitution that's built around the ideas of uh, decentralization and limited uh, federal authority. I still think that that document, that series of documents and the thinking behind it remains a guide star for all of us if we look into a, a future that could be better for all of us as opposed to this, um, this centralized world order uh, great reset that is being planned and shaped for us. This uh, assimilation of the Chinese model. Over. Do you foresee any more viruses and vaccinations and, and shutdowns coming in our immediate future? Shutdowns don't work. And those data are pretty clear. Uh, the, they cause far more harm than they have uh, provided benefit. Will there be more pathogens? There's no question there will be. That's irrefutable. That's just the way things are. Humans and pathogens have been co-evolving for millennia. Uh, we don't have to have this kind of a dysfunctional response. Humans have evolved to have an excellent immune system. And uh, that tension between viral pathogenesis and human uh, immune system has existed for as long as humans have existed. And we seemingly have done pretty well. So I don't think that we really have to have um, this level of centralized control in order to weather the next storm. We'll see. It's a question of what will people tolerate. The people that want to impose these uh, types of globalized authoritarian measures are quite willing to do so if we let them. And finally here, uh, we of course see that your Twitter account was restored and now you have over a million followers. That was quick. Uh, did Elon Musk, did he did he call you and say, hey, we're restoring your account or did he call, email you? How did that no, happen? Just, just uh, what happened was that uh, uh, one of the signers of the Great Barrington Declaration uh, was invited into Twitter and uh, reviewed various files, discussed things with Mr. Musk, and then uh, suddenly the following Thursday, uh, the accounts were turned on. But I, I have to sign off now because I have to catch a cab to go uh, speak to members of parliament here in the UK. Oh, well, we definitely don't want to make you late for that. But Dr. Malone, thank you so much for the information in the chat. And uh, we can find you, of course, on Twitter and your book at all the locations where fine books are sold. So thank you so much for the information. Thank you for the time. Absolutely. And uh, look forward to our next chat. Absolutely. Thank you, then. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to another edition of Film Festival Radio with your host, Janice Malone. Be sure to download this and other episodes at filmfestivalradio.com.